Uh, we're going to be making our way to John chapter 20 this morning as we have an opportunity to reflect upon uh, the resurrection. What a beautiful promise that we see play out. So next week, we'll be back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, so you'll have an opportunity to jump back into that text for those of you that are reading ahead. But today, we're going to focus our attention on the resurrection. And we really started this process last week as we looked at the triumphal entry. And then we went into Friday evening, we talked about uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, paying the ultimate price as we turned all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. And we saw the promises of the Passover Lamb fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Now, you might wonder why we take so much time to really cover uh, this text. And what I, I think is fascinating is uh, God, uh, by his design, puts more pages when he wants us to read more about it. And so he's not trying to make this complicated. When he puts a bunch of uh, real estate in our scripture, there's a reason for that. And so what you find amazingly is that uh, over 30% of the gospels are concerned with just the final week in the life of Jesus. So I feel like the Lord wants us to pay a little bit of attention to this story and this message. And we delved into this some on Friday evening. We turned to Exodus chapter 12, but the, the adage uh, plays out that the Old Testament concealed is the New Testament revealed. That really all of the prophecy and all this amazing symbolism really all points to the Lamb of God who would do this ultimate work of forgiveness for you and I. And so the, the lamb, what we see is he paid the price on Passover, this lamb of God that is the person of Jesus. And now where we are is on Sunday morning. The body of Christ has been taken off of the cross. He's been taken off by a, a two men, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea and a man you might know from John chapter 3 named Nicodemus. These guys were two high-ranking officials inside the Sanhedrin, and they went to Pilate, and they said, we want the body of Jesus. And the reason for this is they were uh, his followers. They were there in secret inside the Sanhedrin. They couldn't stop what was taking place, but they asked for his body, and they took it down off of the cross, and they then placed a linen cloth around him, and they took him to the tomb to bury him. Now, what's the significance of all of this? Well, what you might remember from our study through Hebrews is uh, the high priest would actually wear linen uh, one time a year, known as Yom Kippur. So every other day, the high priest would have his uh, high priestly garb on, his ephod, and all these this beautiful attire. But on Yom Kippur, known as the Day of Atonement, he would change out of that high priestly outfit and he would put on the linen clothes. And he would then go from there into uh, the Holy of Holies. It was the one day of the year he was allowed to go to the most holy place inside the temple. He would go behind the veil and it was there that he would offer the blood of sacrifice. He would sprinkle it upon uh, the Ark of the Covenant. On top of that uh, top plate that covered the Ark, it was known as the mercy seat. And he would offer this payment for the sins of the people. And so as he was in there, what you would also find is that they would tie around the leg of the high priest a rope, and they would put a, a bell on his garment. And the reason was, if for some reason God found this sacrifice to not be worthy, uh, whammo, no more high priest. They'd hear the thud, no more bell, and they would drag that dude out from the Holy of Holies because ain't nobody going back in there after the high priest gets zapped. 
And so the, they would drag the high priest out. They'd have to explain what happened to Mrs. High Priest. They would also have to go about finding a new high priest. But what's even a, a bigger issue for the people is um, if the high priest was not able to live, that meant that the offering was not accepted. That meant that the offering, the price that was paid for the sin of the people, it wasn't accepted. Therefore, the people were still uh, under the wrath of God. They still had to endure His wrath. The payment that turned away wrath was not accepted. And so what we find is, as it relates to Jesus and the price that He paid, if He stays in the ground, He paid the price for our sins. But if the payment wasn't accepted, uh, that means you and I are still dead and buried too. So while the crucifixion and His death and His burial was the payment for the price, the resurrection was the receipt that the payment was accepted. It was the receipt that said this payment was worthy. This payment was good. And so this is what we are celebrating here today, that the payment was accepted. And what we find in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, is Jesus, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So here He is as our great high priest. He's gone into the Holy of Holies. The payment has been accepted. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, is that uh, without the resurrection, we are of all men most pitiable. That if not for the resurrection, we are stuck in our trespasses. We are stuck in our sin. And so praise the Lord for the resurrection because we now have freedom. So let's pick up in John chapter 20, verse 1, where we see now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so Mary Magdalene, one of the followers of Jesus, you might know her as the lady who had been possessed by seven demons. She had lived a very hard life, and yet Jesus had freed her from her demonic possession. He had made her into a new creation, and she was one of the last ones there at his crucifixion. And now what we find is she is the first one to head out to see Jesus. And she doesn't wait around. She heads out early in the morning. She gets herself up. She gets herself ready and she heads out to meet with Jesus. What Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17 is, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. Mary understood this, that to find Jesus, we must seek Him diligently and it's best to start it early in the morning. Before the phone starts to blow up, before the calendar starts to go off, before you begin to think about all your to-do lists that you've got going on, it's best to seek Jesus early in the morning before the distractions take place. And so Mary Magdalene, she starts before the distractions take place. Verse 2, then she ran after seeing the scene of the tomb being opened. She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. And so she comes running down the road. She finds uh, Simon Peter as well as the other disciple whom Jesus loved. We don't have time to get into all this because we are just jumping into John, but let me give you a little insight. That's John. The Apostle John, the writer of this gospel, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now that sounds kind of arrogant, like he's puffed up. I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. But what I would suggest uh, to you is uh, John is very humble. 
And when he looks at his life, he says, you know, I'm no longer to be known as John. The only name I want to carry, the only thing I want to be known as is a disciple who Jesus loves. Whatever I think I am in this world, if I'm not that, I'm nothing. And so he refers to himself as this, and he is paired now together with Simon Peter. And so you have this apostle of love paired together with this big, burly fisherman. I mean, he was a bold, impetuous guy. I mean, they seem like the odd couple. But what you might remember from the story is that Peter had just days prior completely denied Jesus, disavowed him, said that they did not, he did not know him, even cursed his name. And so he had failed as utterly and completely as you could fail. And when you're in a spot like that, what you, if you've ever been there, you know that you need someone like John, someone who just loves, someone that's an encourager to come alongside. And so Peter now is paired together with the perfect person for him, the Apostle John, the Apostle of Love. And so verse 4, they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Now, I've just laid it out there that John is the apostle of love and this caring guy, but he wants to make sure that you know that he's faster than Peter. Don't you love that? I mean, here it's wedged in the middle of the resurrection story. Like, yeah, Pete and I took off running. I'm faster. I mean, boys will be boys. Men, what are you going to do with them? So he makes it very clear. I'm faster. I outran Pete. What I also want to point out is John was the youngest of all the disciples called by Jesus. Seventeen most likely when he was called, meaning three-ish years later, he's still in his early 20s. And so he should have a step up on the old man. But what I also want to say is, uh, for the young people in here, what Paul would communicate to Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 is don't let anybody despise you for your youth. Don't think that you've got to be a gray-haired old man to be someone that's really well-versed in Scripture's. God can use people from all ages, all backgrounds. And so what we see here is here's an older fisherman who's not near as fast and a young fisherman who's fleet of foot, and God can use both of them. Now, verse 5, and he, the speaking of John here, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. And so John, being cautious, being contemplative as a person, he stops there at the open tomb, and he's going to look in. He's going to check this thing out. He's going to see what is taking place inside here. Now, verse 6, Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. And so here's John standing on the outside of the tomb. He's being contemplative, thinking about the situation. And here comes Peter. I mean, he's, he was a big boy. And he just comes barreling up in there. I got no time to think about it. Let's see what's going on. He rolls right on past John and blows into the tomb. And what he sees there are grave clothes, the cloths that used to belong to a dead man. But the thing was, the dead man had, no need of them any longer because he was not dead. What Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, is this. But now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. You see, we 
as new creation have no more need for the old man's clothes. There's a reason we're frustrated because they don't fit. They're not meant for us. And so here is Peter. He's seeing the old clothes. Jesus had no more need, just as we being raised from the dead have no more need of the grave clothes that don't fit us any longer. Something else interesting about this is the detail that the handkerchief that was laying over the head of Christ was now neatly folded and laying off to the side by itself in an interesting fashion as if the Lord wanted to draw attention to it. Now think about this. He's just been crucified. He's been buried. Jesus has gone down into Sheol. He's brought back the keys of hell and death, defeating the prince of darkness. I mean, this is some kind of a last couple days that he's had. And now he's raised back to life again. I got to tell you, if this is me, I'm like, boom, baby, here I am, right? I'm ready to make something happen. Let's make it rain. Not Jesus. He stopped. He took the time to fold the linen cloth that was over his face. And then he set it off to the side, intentionally showing that he was not anxious. He was not in a hurry. He acted completely differently than the way that you and I would act. He's showing that he is under control. One of the greatest attributes of Christ was his meekness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we often confuse meekness with weakness, but meekness is actually power under control. Here's all the power of God, and yet he was so in control, he folds up the cloth and he lays it off to the side to make sure Peter could see it. I'm in control of this whole situation. Now we continue in verse 8. And then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. So finally now John makes his way into the tomb, and when he sees, he believes. Now, for most of you, I'm guessing um, you don't read or speak fluent Greek. So all we see in our English language is three times in the last four verses, the word, the action word, Saul, is written out for us. But if you were a fluent Greek speaker and we had Greek text in front of you, you would notice there are actually three different words used from verse 5 through verse 8 for the word Saul. When Peter went in in verse 5, he stooped down, he looked in, and he saw the linen clothes lying there. And so there the word is blepo. It means to visibly see or to make eye contact. He observed what had taken place. He saw it with his eyes. Secondly, in verse 6, Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And so now he goes in, he sees the linen cloths, but this word is thero. It's where we get our word theory or to theorize from. So he's seen it. He's made eye contact in verse five. Now he's beginning to come up with a theory. He's starting to put the pieces together, wondering what all this means. Lastly, in verse eight, what we just read, the other disciple came into the tomb first. He went in and he saw and believed. And there the word that is used is Ido, it's where we get our word idea from. And so follow the pattern there with me. He first saw, he made contact with his eyes. He then began to theorize and then the idea. Then the light bulb. Now he spent enough time in the word, around the word. This is how it connects in our life, right? 
When we first come to this point where we wonder about Jesus, we look at this big old whopper of a book and we go, man, that looks like a manifesto. I mean, I can see it. There's lots of words. It's black and white. But what in the world is going on? But then as we spend more time, theories begin to pop up. Thoughts begin to come to our mind. It's, it's a process of theorizing. But at some point, there'll be a light bulb. Spending enough time in his word at some point, an idea. Wait a minute. He's the Christ. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then it's life changing. And the way to get to this point is just simply to spend time in his word. To go from hypothesizing and theorizing to then realizing the key to that is spending time with him. It's continuing to look and pour through it. We're like, what in the world does that mean? But then after time and time again, he begins to develop these thoughts and ideas and whammo, the light bulb goes on. As we continue, verse 9, for, in, uh, for as of yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And then the disciples went away again to their own homes. And so after all this time with Jesus, after over and over again, him saying, look, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise from the dead. He's given them all these. Sometimes he gives them a story. Other times he just flat out says it. They still didn't understand the scripture. They had not spent enough time after three years. And so if you've spent years looking through this book, here's the good news. The disciples can feel your pain. They, they didn't understand. And yet they continue to spend time in and around the word, the logos. Now, verse 11, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And so finally, Mary looks inside. And what she sees is she sees an angel at the head of the slab where Jesus had lain and an angel at the feet. Now you remember in the introduction what I shared with you about the high priest going into the Holy of Holies. What was there in the center of the room, the only thing that was there was the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, inside of this was the jar of manna, a promise of God's provision. It was the rod of Aaron, a promise of God's direction. And then it was the law of Moses, which was really God's love to set the people apart. All this was contained inside the ark. And then on top of it was a lid, which was known as the mercy seat. This was where the blood of sacrifice was dripped. But then on each side, at the head and at the foot, was an angel, a cherubim, looking down onto the mercy seat, looking down onto the mercy of God, almost in disbelief. I can't believe how merciful God is. Now, back to our scene. Here's Mary. She steps foot into the tomb. What she sees is an angel at the head, an angel at the foot, looking down, probably with blood still dripped upon the slab of the mercy seat. The payment that turned away wrath. It had been paid. It had been accepted. And so she gets this wonderful outlook. Now, verse 13. Then they, speaking of the angels, said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. I love what Mary said here, and I've highlighted in my Bible. It's not blasphemy to highlight something in your Bible, so I'd encourage you to. Um, she refers to Jesus as my Lord. 
She didn't say the Lord or a Lord. It was personal. He was her Lord. This meant something to her. She said, they have taken away my Lord. Her focus was completely and totally on Jesus. Verse 14, now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. In verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she supposed him to be the gardener and said to him, sir, if you have take, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Now here, here's the scene. Mary is just talking to two angels. I mean, look throughout scripture and watch what happens when people talk to angels. They typically fall down on their face and they begin to try to worship the angels. And the angels usually are like, whoa, whoa, stop that. Don't worship me. Worship God. But here's Mary. She sees two angels and yet her eyes are so fixed on Jesus, she turns away. She has eyes only for him. And as she turns away, she sees him and yet she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the lawn boy. He's the gardener. Showed up to cut the grass. I share that to say, Jesus showed up in a way she didn't expect. And I want to encourage you because time and time again, what you're going to find in your life is he is interested in every single facet of you. What you do, where you go, who you're involved with, he is so interested in your life, and yet you can miss him if you do not expect to see him that often he can show up and do a great work. And if you're anything like the rest of us, we blame it on uh, coincidence. Or look at the luck. Or I remember years ago in Farmington, I had a contractor who had had a run of bad luck, and he, he blamed it on Carmen. That's just Carmen coming back around. I'm like, I don't know who Carmen is. I think you're talking about karma. But uh, whoever poor Carmen is, you're blaming her for whatever's gone wrong. But that's how we are so often, right? We, we want to blame or give credit where credit is not due. Here's Jesus in a very unexpected way in the middle of her situation. She just didn't have eyes to see it. Now, verse uh, 16, And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. And Jesus said in verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have yet uh, have not yet ascended to my father, but to but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. And so Mary didn't recognize his physical appearance, but what she did recognize was his voice. John chapter 10, verse 4, Jesus says, I am the shepherd and my sheep know my voice. She knew the voice of her shepherd because she had spent so much time at his feet. And so she knew his voice. She recognized him. And then the Lord says, look, don't hang on to me because I've got something so much better planned for you. I've got better things than just this body that you're seeing right now. I'm going to ascend into heaven and I'm going to open your eyes just shortly. And so he then gives her a command. He tells her in verse 17, go to my brethren. I love this because um, here's the thing. He gives to Mary the charge to carry the good news of the gospel. The good news that Jesus has risen from the dead. He gives this to Mary Magdalene, a lady who had lived a life that most of us could not even fathom, uh, demonically possessed. God only knows what her background looked like. 
to take it a step further, what you might know about uh, Jewish scholars of that day, the rabbis would say it would be better for the Hebrew Bible to fall into the fire than to be put into the hands of a woman or a Gentile dog. That's how they viewed women and anyone less than them in their society. And what does Jesus do? He gives the gospel to this woman and he says, go. He gives it to one who no one would have thought would have been the recipient of this. And he encourages her to go and to share with his brethren. I love that he calls the disciples my brethren because what you know about the story is they had all blown it. They had blown it big time. I mean, out of the 12, one deceived Jesus, which led to him going to the cross. One stuck around to the end. That's John. And the other 10, they just hightailed it. If this is me, I'm like, go to those knotheads that were supposed to hang out and actually worship me. But instead, Jesus says, go to my brethren. And he gives this message to Mary, not because she had a higher education. Likely, she didn't even know how to read. He gives this to Mary because she loved him and he loved her. That was it. That was all the more that was required for her to receive the message of the gospel was just love. That's what was being communicated. Now, verse 18. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had, uh, that she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things to her. Verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And so here they are, huddled together in fear. Huddled together in this room with the door shut. They're worried about Romans. They're worried about Jews. Now they've heard the tomb is empty. People are going to blame them. They've got all these kind of stories that are filtering through their mind. It's all fear. And Jesus meets them right where they're at. He doesn't say, come to me. He says, I'll come to you. I'll come right to the place where you're at. And his word, his message for them was peace. I mean, this is amazing to me that this was his message to them. I've got to tell you, if, if I'm in that spot, I'm chastising them. I'm probably going Al Pacino, sin of a woman. I'm taking a flamethrower to this place. Right? That's how I'm going to operate. Jesus, in his response, was peace. How could they possibly have peace in a spot with so much anxiety? Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How can we have peace instead of anxiety? How can we have peace in a spot where it looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket? It's knowing that we've been justified. What does it mean to be justified? It means just as if I'd never sinned. But the key to justification is faith. It's believing on the one who has justified you. We go on to verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. He showed them his hands, his side, the price that had been paid. And these guys were now justified because they believed. They had simple faith. And what they knew, what they realized was he was not only the just, but what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, is he is the just 
And he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is both judge and jury. He was standing right there before them. So if he's good, they're good. He is the just and he is the justifier. No one else is needed. No other opinion is needed. Verse 21. So Jesus said to them, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And at this point, new life was born. He breathed on them. He gave them what uh, the Hebrew Bible says is the Ruach. What the Greek says is the pneuma. Both of them mean air. He breathed the breath of life on them. And up to this point, they didn't have the Holy Spirit in them. He was alongside them, but he was not in them. He's alongside every single one of us that draws a breath, pointing us towards Jesus as the Christ. But when they believed, they then received the Holy Spirit in them, and he began a new work. All the way back at the beginning of our Bible, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The Ruach was breathed into man, and and man became a living being, able to be in community, in fellowship with God. But at the fall, at, at Adam and Eve making a decision to follow another master, they could no longer have fellowship with God because their spirit had died. They were dead spiritually, dead in their trespasses. And thank you, Adam and Eve, they've passed that nature on down to us. So all of us were born spiritually stillborn. And it's not until the breath of life that's breathed in us, the Ruach HaKodesh, the breath of the Holy Spirit that's breathed into us that we actually have new life. Now in John chapter 3, Jesus is trying to explain this little concept to Nicodemus, one of the great teachers of Israel. And he's like, dude, I don't get it. I do not understand how the Spirit works, how the breath works And what Jesus explains in John chapter 3, I'll read in verse 8. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The the wind, the Spirit, the Ruach, it blows where it wants. He, He comes into those who receive Him, and yet the only way to tell that someone has received the Holy Spirit is what is its effects. So what you know about physical wind is the way we can tell. If you're, uh, if you know anyone that just went through those storm events down in Robinson a few weeks ago, the only way to tell which direction the wind was going or what the after effects were was what was left behind, right? We see the results of the wind coming into their life. Now that's a very destructive Uh, kind of a thing to point out, but here's what I want to explain to you. We need that same kind of wind in our life. We need Him to come in with the whirlwind of faith and blow these things out of there, these idols that we've built up, all this sin that we've piled up. We need Him to overturn these things so that He can begin anew, so that He can start fresh. And the foundation we're to build on isn't a foundation of sand and lies and vanity and all these temporary things. It's the foundation of Christ. It's Jesus. We build upon the rock, and then these things will stand. And so this is how you know that you have the Spirit in your life. 
Has he come in and blown things around? Has he begun to build something anew? Can you see the effects of the Spirit in your life? And then you know that he's come into you. Finally, verse 23, as we wrap up this morning. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Um, I will admit, I was really tempted this morning to end at verse 22. (laughs) Because that's way easier to stop there um, than it is to go on. Very difficult passage for us to understand. What Jesus communicates though, and this is all a part of this same text, is that if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So what in the world am I to do with that? The best commentary on the Bible is often um, the Bible. And so in Mark chapter 2, there's this scene, the story you probably heard in children's church as a kid. Um, It's the story of the paralytic man and his four friends. And so in Mark chapter 2, the paralytic man was brought to Jesus by his four buddies. They're all gathered there in a house. Jesus is teaching, and there's so many people in the house, they can't get their friend who needs to be healed to Jesus. And so what they do is they, they make their way up on the roof with this dude on a mat, and they begin to dig by hand through the roof of the house to lower him down in front of Jesus. Now you can imagine what kind of disruption that would cause to a service. I mean, we've got a crack in our drywall in the ceiling, but it ain't opening up for somebody to fall down from the ceiling, right? I feel like I probably would lose you all at that point. So here's the scene, though. The the ceiling is open. The man is being dropped down. And as the man is dropped down, Jesus looks upon this man and the faith of his friends, and he tells him, son, your sins are forgiven. You could hear the breath go out of the room. Because there are Pharisees and all these legalists that are in there like, wait a minute, you don't have the power to forgive sins. That belongs to God. What he was declaring to them right then and there was that he is God. Now, knowing that they were doubting and they were thinking this was blasphemy, he, he knows this in his mind. He says, okay, what, which is easier for me to say? Son, your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your mat and walk. I mean, the simple answer is to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can see that. It's a really hard thing to say, rise, take up your mat, you person who's been paralyzed for years and years, walk on out of here. But Jesus makes it clear. He says, so you understand I have the power to forgive sins. I say to this man, rise, take up your mat, walk. And the man took up his mat, he rolled it up, and he walked right on out of there. And so here is the scene. Mark chapter 12, or excuse me, Mark chapter 2, verse 12. Immediately he rose, took up the bed, and went out of the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. They were amazed. They had never seen anything like what had just taken place. But could you imagine If Jesus told the man, rise, take up your mat and walk, if the guy would have just said, you know, I'm good. I mean, really, this bed's comfy. I'm in a pretty good spot here. I've kind of worked it in over the years. I I think I'm good. The man was healed. He was forgiven. And yet he, he had to roll up his mat and walk. 
Or even better than this, imagine if he rolls up his mat and he walks out of there and he heads home to his wife that had only known him to be paralyzed for years and years. And she says, not buying it. Seen you paralyzed for way too long. I know you all too well. You're still paralyzed. The question is, was he healed? Because it was obvious he was walking around. But in both cases, what I'm sharing with you is if we don't accept his forgiveness, that's ultimately what he is showing them and sharing with them today. He's saying, I am risen from the dead. I've paid the price. You're forgiven of any and all sins that you might have. If I refuse to accept it, then I'm still stuck in my sin and trespass. If I uh, refuse to accept someone else can be forgiven, guess what? They're able to still walk around. Do you understand who still retains the sin? You. And that sometimes is way more of a prison, way more dangerous to you as the one who has retained the sin against your brother or your sister or your loved one than they've got. They're able to walk around free, you see. Now, I'm not saying this to say we believe in name it and claim it or the power of positive suggestion. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying I want you to believe in the power of the Savior who can forgive. He's the place where we put our faith and our trust and understand that if you forgive, you'll be released from that prison that you would otherwise be shackled by. And so no different than the man here who was paralyzed and then he was able to be free. But so many times, because we can't forgive ourselves for what we've done, we look back at our past and we think we've got to be shackled and chained and tied to that. And what happens is, instead of being an effective church, an effective bunch of disciples, we're just a bunch of limp-legged paralytics dragging ourselves around. Or even worse, we hold other people to a standard we don't want to be held to, and then we're actually more imprisoned than they are. And so today, what I want to encourage you in, is to accept His forgiveness. Understand that He has forgiven you and you now have the ability to go out and forgive others. Don't be chained to that anymore. Rise up from that bed and walk away. No longer paralyzed, but able to motor around and be a disciple, a new creation, one who Jesus loves. And so, Father, I thank You and I praise You for the resurrection, Lord. Thank you so much for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for forgiveness. My goodness. You have paid the price. You have done it all. Who am I not to forgive? I think about all the pile and the mess that I have made and all that you have forgiven. Far be it from me to hold it against anyone else. Lord, I pray that same thing over the lives of these folks. Lord, help us to be able to forgive others, to not be chained, shackled to that, to be imprisoned by it, Lord. Thank you so much that the prison of hell and death could not hold you, that the payment was received, it was accepted in full. And now we can be free. In Jesus' name, amen.